You're listening to Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. And I wonder, well, I'm sure you do remember the big fuss and all the interviews around Damon Galgut's book, The Promise, which was a Booker Prize-winning novel. And we had him here on Fine Music Radio, both on People of Note and in our book choice program. Now that book is going to be converted into a play in what promises to be one of the most thrilling theatre highlights of the year, and it's going to have its world premiere here in Cape Town this September. Club Desert Productions and the Market Theatre present Damon Galgut's The Promise on stage, featuring, as you'll hear, a star-studded South African cast and creative team. The production is directed by internationally acclaimed multiple award-winning director Sylvain Strike, who's with me in the studio. Sylvain, welcome. Thank you so much, Rodney. It's really lovely to be here. I don't think any of that that I've said is um, hyperbole because it's a stunning novel in many ways and rightly won the Booker Prize. And so I'm most intrigued how you convert that really quite traumatic story into a play. But I gather you've had all sorts of discussions stretching back some two years. How did it come to be a play? Well, uh, Damon Galgut approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in adapting it uh, into a play because there'd been some demand for it to manifest as a play. I think he he initially uh, was was quite sort of uh, not resistant but wondered how it would translate mm-hmm. and uh, I think he, he gave it some thought in terms of who would possibly be able to do an adaptation and because I work on such a physical visual level yes. I think I, I came to mind um, and he then approached me and I said I would be honored on condition that you collaborate with me I didn't feel I could even remotely Tinker with his extraordinary... Had you read the book before? I had, I had Ah, read it. So you knew what you were in for? Yes, I had. And I was uh, very taken by the book, as many of us have been. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just immediately incredibly drawn to the idea, but on condition that he could help and be with me on board this. And did he agree? Did he agree willingly or grudgingly? Uh, Not grudgingly, but I think um, (laughs) a little fearfully in the sense that we didn't quite know how we'd go about it. And when we started entering conversations, um, which, as you said, have taken up to almost a year and a half now of of being in conversation around this adaptation, it's just become absolutely apparent that it definitely needs to manifest as a live production. Mm -hmm. And who did the um, the adaptation? So Damon and I have been working on it oh, together. Oh, the two of you wrote the what, what we call it a screenplay, but the text for the play. Correct. Right. So it would it it came um, as a result of several meetings between Damon and I, quite lengthy meetings, mm-hmm. deciding what we keep, what we let go of, which is a very hard decision to make when you're faced with a novel and have to put it into the time frame of a play, like with a film, you really mm-hmm. do have to be very selective of what you keep. But mostly it was about deciding on what kind of style this would be. And the key to that led to really looking at the role of the narrator in his novel, Mm -hmm. which um, shifts and morphs and looks at the story from all angles. That's one of the amazing things about the book, isn't it? Um, Yeah. Every section of the book, I don't want to say every chapter, but vast sections of the book, have a different approach to characters and events, Completely. yet it's the same narrator. Yes, and I think the closest we could get to in terms of analysing it was imagining a roaming camera 
moving from room to room or decade to decade because the the novel spans four decades, which is very hard to do mm-hmm. uh, over a two-hour show, for example. Right, um, right. But uh, and for that reason alone, the physicality of the work is absolutely paramount, and casting correctly with actors who, as I say, are physically intelligent and are able to morph their bodies from young to old. I don't want any grey wigs uh, <laughs> on stage. Put it that way. Okay. <laughs> Um, later on in the interview, I want to talk to you about your physical involvement in theatre, which you've mentioned a few times now. But how difficult was it getting a cast together? And are you allowed to give us some names? Yes, I am. Um, the one thing I keep facing whenever people see the cast is how did you manage to get them all in a room together for longer than a minute? Um, <laughs> they are high-profile, wonderful artists, um, and I feel extremely blessed that they've all agreed to be on board, considering you know how busy they are themselves and in demand they are. So uh, as the matriarch and patriarch of the Swart family, we have uh, Frank Opperman playing Pa mm-hmm. or Marnie, and uh, the lovely Kate Normington playing Ma, um, Rachel Swart. We've got Rob Van Feeren playing Anton as the oldest boy in the family. The siblings are three siblings. We've got the lovely Jenny Stead playing mm. Astrid. And we've got a young uh, ingenue called Jane DeVette playing Amor, who is also a very memorable character in the book because she is the so. one who carries that promise and... Mm-hmm. Make sure it, it is led to fruition. You've almost made me want to read the book again. <laughs> We've right also got, I mustn't forget, oh, yes. the wonderful Albert Pretorius, Sintain Skitter, Sanda Shandu, and then the most important one. They're all important. Yes. <laughs> but I'll tell you why she's so important is, yes. is Tuma Sopotela, who's playing Salome. And it's through the lens of Tuma Sopotela's uh, Salome that the story is told. Okay. Which is not the case in the book, is it? Uh, no. Nope. Not at all, is it? No. She's, she's the maid, isn't she? Correct. Right. She is and the maid. And she's given this promise. The and promise yeah. comes from, in a sense, that the house was, everything was going to be given to the maid or something. Well, this, uh, a small little house on the property was going to be given to the maid, not the main house oh, by right. any means. Okay. And uh, it's ironic because the Swat family has no need for that house, but it takes them four decades to actually give it to her. Mm-hmm. As I say, you've made me want to read it again. Um, so then what's our first piece of music? Let's take a break before we um, yes. look at the play again. So I've chosen What a Difference a Day Makes by Dinah Washington. Um, this was uh, a song that played at the end of my very first uh production that I did um, and and experienced as a a young theatre maker called Black and Blue, which was made in 2004. Um, And I think it has uh, has resonance with the theme of the promise in the sense that it was about a woman who had lost her husband and who has a very uh, fruitful and wonderful relationship with her gardener. And he brings her out of grief. Uh, but it's also about the master-servant relationship in this country and how nothing much has changed in that regard.
That was called What a Difference a Day Makes, sung by Dinah Washington. It was the first choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, Sylvain Strike, who is directing the play called The Promise, based on Damon Galgut's award-winning book, The Booker Prize. One of the things um, when I did read the book, just before we get back to the plot, was that I was confused as to why Damon didn't really use any conventional punctuation. And I thought there must be some, knowing that the book is so multi-layered, yeah. there must be some sort of reason he chose to do it that way. I spoke to him about that, and, and uh, he said that he was at the time of writing it very influenced by Virginia Woolf, particularly oh, really? Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. If I'm not mistaken, I stand corrected, but I seem to remember that. And then also he uh, he mentioned writing a screenplay at the time and learning to sort of think like a camera would. Um, so there's this kind of fluid camera movement that works through the words as well without oh. stopping and uh, having to sort of... A sort of flow, a flow as watching of sorts. scenes change. Correct. So, so in any jerking. Yeah, exactly. And in um, inverted commas where, where characters normally speak are absent as well. Mm. They just mm. speak and then the text carries on. So... Yeah, I think quite uh, revolutionary in a way, that um, novel. And is that why you and Damon decided to present it as a sort of moving camera, roving camera uh, in the production? Yes, because the, narr- the narration lends to that. Um, and we have come up with a device of a chorus within like our cast of nine. Like a Greek chorus nine. sort of idea. Well, I, th- I think yeah, in a way the Greek chorus is the one which, much like the narrator in this book, offers its own opinion on what is developing and sometimes the chorus is on the side of the characters and other times it is very objective and actually ridicules the characters so we're able to use the device of a chorus within this this pool of nine actors um and i don't want people to sort of run in horror and think it's going to be a group standing and speaking to them um because we're looking with charles johann lingenfelder who's our sound designer to work very closely with microphone and uh, the power of intimate narration through microphones, which I think will be very beautiful mm. uh, regarding this novel. Regarding the chorus, that is. That's yes, how you're the, going to use the chorus, the chorus. Commenting on events unfolding. Oh, okay. Um, and with with the setting that you've done, I mean, one of the, the things about the book, as we've said, it's, it moves on so many levels and to so many places. There's that famous rock that... Anton, is it used to go up to... The, it's Amor that goes up to the copy. Oh, to the copy. Yes, Amor, yes. yes, yes. Right, yes. right. And She's a lot happens and is thought out up there, isn't there? Yes, indeed. And it's the copy that, if you will, is a kind of landmark between the two houses, the mm-hmm. family's house and Salome's house. And it's a road that Salome travels every day up the hill, past the copy and back down to the house mm-hmm. where she works. And Amor sits on this no-man's land, if you will, between the two she was also struck by lightning. That's right, on that spot. On that very spot and has been forbidden to go and sit there since that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose the symbolism of that is so powerful. Uh, and and she she doesn't obviously die of it, but is scarred and has uh, her feet are affected by it, her feet burnt. Um, so, yes, in terms of landscape, there's this very fluid landscape that moves between time and space and uh, geography. So we see the rock as well as the house and Salome's house and all that. Correct, we do, yeah. Because the novel moves around a lot. There's scenes set in Cape Town, there's scenes... Durban, Durban, Cape Town, London. 
um, the middle of town in Johannesburg, I Very think. Very much so, yes. yes. Menlin, Pretoria. Wow. Yeah. How are you going to do all that? Because it's integral to the novel, that, the, that it moving is, around. It is. And I think, and I mean, initially Damon did, did say, like, how are we going to change locations? <laughs> this is terrible. What are we going to do? How many sets must we build? Um, and I said, no, well, this is why we're choosing actors who are storytellers first and foremost and who just with the flick of a body tell us that they're somewhere else. Um, the narrator's role which is very important and uh, is taken on by Kuma Sopotela, who also plays Salome, allows us to change location very quickly. So she can begin by saying, on a farmhouse in Pretoria, uh, here we are. Mm -hmm. And then we can change just as swiftly and be in Cape Town. So in a sense, the set for this production is actually quite small. Not not exactly elaborate. Exactly. Um, we're keeping a very open page. I have Joshua Lindbergh's beautiful set design, which we uh, spoke about lengthily before it was made, and it's actually under construction as we speak. Um, and uh, w basically, it's an open blank page, almost like an origami piece of paper that's been folded to resemble the flooring or the floor pattern of a house, the plan of a house. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we've got uh, different levels, but nothing concrete so it can completely morph into what we want it to be. Gosh. But how exciting it sounds, as though it must have been a huge challenge and quite scary in many ways, how exciting must it have been to work like that and to work with someone like Joshua Lindeberg and coming up with all these amazing ideas. There must have been gasp moments. There were and still are and we're very, very privileged because we were able to do a week's workshop back in April mm -hmm. where the entire cast and all my creative team was there. So we're talking about nine actors plus a choreographer, Natalie Fisher, plus Joshua Lindbergh, set designer, Charles Lingenfelder, sound designer and our costume designer, Penny Simpson. So this incredible team of people were privy to us discovering the fourth draft of Damon's writing. Yeah. And we then started to play with ideas of what the staging would look like. And so it gave birth to the blueprint or DNA, if you will, mm -hmm. of what we're looking to do in the actual production itself. Oh gosh, it sounds terribly exciting. What is your next piece of music? Sylvain? My next piece of music is Miles Davis's Elevator to the Gallows. Um, I chose this because it was a very influential piece to me when I was studying at the Jacques Lecoq School in Paris. Which we're coming to, by the way. Yes, I had a teacher called Norman Taylor, um, who was incredibly influential in my life and introduced me to Miles Davis purely from the point of view of how movement can also exist in sound, and it marked me very much. That was called Elevator to the Gallows, composed and played for us by Miles Davis and another choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio, Sylvain Strike, who's the director of what sounds like an extraordinary project, uh, Damon Galgut's Booker Prize-winning novel The Promise being brought to the stage with quite a cast, and it all sounds Really exciting. But just before we go back to the play, Sylvain, you mentioned just now the fact that we're working on um, physical theatre movement analysis in the Ecole Jacques Lecoq in Paris. What attracted you to that? Or what is it about movement that attracts you like that? 
I uh, studied at UCT at the drama school um, and was, I think from the start, I mean, uh, you know, having had ballet training as a child, etc., I never saw theatre to be separate to the work of the body in the sense that the, the body can tell a story without speaking. As I, we know from ballet. As we know. Except it's got lovely music. Yeah, yeah. So obviously very influenced by... Uh, Andrew Buckland, Jenny Resnick, mm. people uh, who had that sort of physical uh, approach to work first and foremost, um, and then went on to uh, to work a little after I graduated and still felt I needed to be able to have the equipment to tell my own stories in the physical form. Mark Huben was also a great influence in my life uh, as a student, and so I applied for the Jacques Lecoq School, um, which I was very fortunate to get a bursary for uh, via the French Institute. Is that a well-known school for movement? It is a highly well-known school. So Jacques Lecoq and Marcel Marceau are on a par. Oh, okay. um, Jacques Lecoq is far more about uh, the creative being able to find their own identity as storyteller, director, sonographer, whereas Marcel Marceau is more about learning the art of mime but they are known uh, in Paris and throughout the world for being physical theatre training schools. Um, and uh, it is a two-year course. One gets accepted into the second year on merit. You can also get booted out if it's not really the right school for you. In fact, they cull you per term, which is rather terrifying. <laughs> I'm sure it but is. I'm very happy I made it through to the end. Um, and it was an extraordinarily life-changing experience for me. I was living in Paris um, alone as a 24-year-old, uh, turned 25, consequently, in my second year. And... Um, I think it's there that I managed to birth and understand my own voice as a storyteller. And I was equipped through the school to have tools that would help me tell it and to understand intimately the gestural power that lies within a single actor's body with its whole toolbox being part of your human anatomy um, and oh that goodness. was uh, life changing for me. It and sounds like it. It's how like. it began my career really as a, as a director. Mm -hmm. Did you start as an actress first and foremost? Yes, I hadn't directed until that point. Okay, but this uh, physical theatre movement brought you into the directing sphere? Yes, it did. And are you still acting? I do still act. I've just come off stage with a play called Firefly which was wonderful and, in fact, was with Andrew Buckland and directed by Tony Morkel. Um, and all of us are very much from that same similar style of mm -hmm. theatre making. When did you discover that it was... Well, I think you might have said earlier that, you, that it was all about physical, the body and all that in, in acting. Was that when you were young and studying here at UCT? Yes. I mean, I... You know, we did... We did standard text and classical uh, forming, if you was, uh, will, was a, a classical formation uh, where we would learn the entire gamut of, of classical training, which is incredibly important, um, and text of every nature. But what spoke to me most was the silence before and after the spoken word and what happens when we're thinking of what we want to say or reacting to what has just been said. And that was... The kind of blueprint for me to start analysing why I was so interested in it. Um, I, w I was less interested in text than I was in 
in response. <laughs> it's a bit of a confession there. Yeah, yeah, I was. No, and, and it makes sense. Uh, yeah. But do you have to be particularly fit to undertake these physical theatre and movement analysis courses? I, I th- yeah, I think so. And I think one gets fitter as a result as of, of, of understanding how the body works, um, getting used to injury and recovery, but mostly... Uh, the, the dexterity that it takes to keep stretching yourself to be absolutely accurate in what you're saying and economical in what you're saying with the body and with, with uh, not only silence. Of course, I use text. I mean, I've worked with many texts in my lifetime, um, have been privileged enough to touch on Samuel Beckett, yes, Sam Shepard, so um, and Molière. Um, so, so text is part of what I do, mm-hmm. but the physical gesture that accompanies text for me, whether it betrays what the person is actually saying or enhances what they're saying was... was so to get back to your question, yes, a, a very keen interrogative understanding of what the body does and how it moves helps mm-hmm. to economize gesture. And this technique can be used in any form of theatre, whether it's Shakespeare or absolute ultra-modern theatre. It can be used in any theatre. I believe so, yeah. And if you are acting and the director, does he ever allow you to express yourself more physically than he or she might have expected or wanted? I think so. And I mean, I I suppose one carves a, a career or a name where you're known for a particular interpretation of things, Mm. I tend to um, do as much film as possible because it also encourages me to use the gestural aspect uh, more restrictively, uh, you know, and film does automatically get the work is a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. But if you think of someone like Jeffrey Rush, who was also at the Jacques Lecoq School, for instance. Oh, really? Yeah. Julie Taymor, who mm-hmm. created The Lion King. They're all Lecoq graduates, so extremely expressive on the physical and visual front, but can also make it a lot smaller. So, yeah, um, I think actor, uh, directors would choose me for a particular physicality, mm-hmm. but also know that I can, you know, morph if need be. Morph, I like that morph word. Is morph is a good word. It's an important word in your life, apparently, because of what you have to do and what you've done with this play. And I want to ask you how you've brought this uh, physical theatre and movement analysis into the promise. But first of all, your next piece of music. Yes. So I discovered a pianist and composer called Alexis French. And there's a particular song that he composed called Bluebird. It's not a song, it's a piece of music, um, which reminds me of Amour, the youngest character in the book. That's a piece called Bluebird, played and composed by Alexis French, a choice of my guest here on People of Note on Fine Music Radio. I'm talking to Sylvain Strike, who is the director of Damon Galgut's novel The Promise, coming to the stage. And talking about physicality, there's a quote here, which I'm sure you know, Sylvain, from Damon Galgut, who says, I'm a great fan of Sylvain's work, the detailed physical transformations, vivid imagery, pathos, and hilarity of her productions remain in audiences' hearts long after a show has ended. 
So that's a nice comment from the author. Thank you. And it is indeed. I'm very, very flattered. <laughs> Are you well into? You must be well into rehearsal now, because you open. When do you open? Um, we open on the 11th with previews, and uh, we'll be opening. Oh, our opening night is on the 20th. Okay, and where is it being staged, incidentally? It's being staged at the uh, previously known Fugard Theatre, oh, now yes. the Homecoming Centre, in the Star Theatre, to be more precise. Okay, okay. So, did you, when you set up, first of all, how did you come to direct this? What came first, and the sort of chicken and egg thing? Did Damon want it, or you said he was perhaps a little reticent? How did you get involved with directing this play? This adaptation. Well, yeah, so Damon, um, I think, you know, from from his quote, one gathers he has seen a lot of my work, and mm -hmm. I think uh, he approached me. Um, oh, he approached yes, you. Yes, he did okay. approach me, and okay. I think he approached me because he understood somewhere very, very broadly that it would need uh, a visual and physical uh, adaptation as opposed to a more traditional right. adaptation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's a nice compliment to you as well, apart from what he wrote there. And when you got together for the initial rehearsals with the cast, how did they react to your wanting it to be, can we say, more physical than perhaps one expected? Yes. Well, I think that when actors are called to audition for me, they immediately uh, and automatically understand that it's going to be of a physical nature. So oh, right. firstly, that... Um, you know, that helps me create a list of who I'd like to see because in their CVs or in their previous works that I might have seen them in, actors will have shown me that they are able to transform uh, without the help of costumes necessarily mm -hmm. with the body um, because what it requires when you're adapting a novel is that all the actors play more than one character. Yes, so they're sure. going to I mean one of our actors, Albert Pretorius, is playing up to six characters. <laughs> so uh, with the most fantastical ability to transform in, uh, you know, on a dime. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, that that aspect is very much part of of what I look for in an actor, and uh, they have not disappointed. Ah, uh, and is this a hand-picked cast? Uh, the, everyone you asked has come forward. Yes, it is a hand-picked cast. Uh, the audition process happened in uh, February, March 2023. And, uh, yeah, it was it was difficult to make the decision, finally, who mm -hmm. those nine would be. But uh, they're, they're absolutely spot on. One of the ones I want to ask you about is Rob van Furen, who is best known as a comedy comic, isn't he? Correct. Com comedian. Yes. So it's interesting because Anton, in the book is by far the most wry and hilarious mm. of the characters. Mm -hmm. Often we see the world through his eyes. Um, he's also the most tragic. And I worked with Rob van Furen on Endgame by Samuel Beckett at the Baxter Theatre, also produced by Derek Labner of Desert Productions. And um, it was there that I saw that, that Rob really is able to hold both those pools very, very balanced and beautifully. Um, and so Anton, the oldest son, requires that. And the actor who plays him requires also to age from 19 to 50. Wow. And Rob has that Peter Pan He's, element, I was going to say, he? yes, he does, very much so. But he can, in, in, you know, in just one shift, appear very old as well. Mm. Um, and I think that's his ability to, to tap into life and uh, 
the way he feels about the world. Yeah, absolutely. When you read the book, it's his writing we reading, isn't it, in a sense? Yes, on and off. He, and he off. is known as the writer in the yeah, book, and yeah, well, yeah. failed writer. He because doesn't he ever is, produce he, a piece of writing. But doesn't he write his writing something like yes, through the furiously book? Furiously writing, and, yes. and noting that this would be a good thing in a book, and uh-huh. then the next paragraph is what he's written, and uh, so it goes, you know. Uh-huh. I remember one of the scenes, because the book affected me a lot, actually. Um, I, I wasn't expecting to be affected. I don't know Damon's work terribly well. Mm. I've read, read a couple of his books. And someone recommended this, and I set out. And I, you know, the cliche of not being able to put it down, it really was a bit like that because I couldn't. For a while, I thought I was lost. For a while, I thought I couldn't w- couldn't work out what was going on because mm. of the levels and the changes. Mm. But <clears throat> I was just completely gripped by it. And I can't quite say why. Yeah. It's it's a tragic family um, that you are somehow drawn to and that you somehow sympathize with, yeah. understand. Does that make sense? Completely. Um, it, it's an extraordinary book because it does just that. It mm-hmm. it almost makes you feel like, did I read it? Because it's <laughs> so complex that you've got to go back. And, and so analyzing and adapting this has been you know, a challenge from that perspective because it's ever morphing. It seems to mm. keep shifting in, in, in the sense of whose perspective it's from. It's also all-encompassing. So he he creates this family, the Swart family, for whom Salome works. And we go from the 1980s to present-day South Africa. So it affects an entire generation who have lived that, that long and longer. Yes. We identify with that world of the apartheid South Africa, but also the post-apartheid, the democratic South Africa. And he accurately pinpoints the the transition that this country is in, but has never actually managed to um, move Uh, through (laughs) or move past. It's constantly in transition, and he captures it with such... um, moving detail Mm. he also enters the lives of each of these characters with such extraordinary ability to understand them Um, and I think particularly from Anton's perspective uh, that boy who was in the army who was involved in the army patrolling townships and who shoots a woman and never recovers from that incident way into his life Mm. it's almost as if that incident alone crippled his entire life just like apartheid truly has crippled this country's existence um and and at the same time and i really must must say this the book is funny and i don't know how he manages it (laughs) but it is dark it's dark and often hilarious and so that's a curious sort of hilarity it is curious it is hilarity but it's a curious hilarity. It's dark, mm. I mean, and sinister. Sinister, um, that's the word, and, and I think macabre in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't leave any stone unturned. Gosh, I really have to read it again. <laughs> because <laughs> although when you say a book is dense and on many levels, sometimes you can put someone off. Mm. Fortunately, no one said that to me. So I went in unawares. Yeah. But it isn't that sort of, it's not a... A dense book because, as I've said, it's a it's bit of a page turner. Such an easy read and, and yet incredibly complex. It is in completely, um, what's the word? It's not based on real life people. No, it's completely fictional. That's right. Yeah. It's completely fictional. Yeah. And how he built 
created those characters is amazing. It is amazing. And, and just on that point alone, I think that the character of Salome is someone we all know. And what he's done um, so cleverly, and he's often been asked, like, why is Salome not got a voice? Why is she so quiet? Because it's the truth. Our mm. domestic workers aren't very often asked, how are you? Where are you from? What is your story? They appear and go away, and it's convenient to have them like that in our lives, running our homes smoothly, permeating everything we touch, sit on, eat from, and yet not really being audible or visible to us. Um, and so that's how he's captured Salome. But in the play, she will be hyper-present and hyper-visible. And we can never set her aside and we can never forget her mm. and, and we can never forgive the family for not seeing her the way that they ignore to see her. It, it's, it's, it's just phenomenal, actually, oh. what is achieved. But goose fleshy. Mm. We're going to have another piece of music, uh, Sylvain. Yes, we are. Um, and since we were speaking of Anton, I think of Lou Reed's Just a Perfect Day. That's Lou Reed, a piece called Just a Perfect Day, and yet another choice by my guest, Sylvain Strike, who's really riveting me with stories of Damon Galgut's Booker Award-winning novel, The Promise, which is about to be staged here in Cape Town and which Sylvain is directing. One of the things, we, we were talking about stage sets earlier, also the period it covers. What have you done about costumes? So... Penny Simpson is wonderful. I've never worked with her before, but we've had a lovely collaboration. And my brief to Penny was, it's almost as if these actors have emerged from the floorboards in service of a story. Um, so they're all in a kind of monochrome chorus and they're, uh, uh, the, the, the textures and outfits that they have are all quite similar. And then with the help of either a hat or a brooch or a scarf or a yarmulke, because the story involves a whole lot of different religions as well, they change and shift. So changes of costume are, are used very, very sparingly um, with a simple thing that just uh, suggests a new character has arrived. Mm -hmm. And as you've been saying in the course of the interview, and the rest is done with their bodies. Indeed. Okay. And lighting, don't forget, and lighting by Josh Erlenberg, which um, helps to define the space architecturally. Mm -hmm. So where are we, when, where must the eye look? It's where the light is. Okay. And what about, is there um, a music element to it? We have developed along uh, with Charling, uh, Johann Lingenfelder uh, a, a soundscape, and a lot of the sound is created by the actors themselves, who can all sing, by the way. It was also a criteria. Ah, okay. My goodness. It sounds as though it's been a lot of hard work, but it sounds as though it's been really, really stimulating. It's been an extraordinary privilege. It's the only way I can put it. And we all feel so deeply privileged to have been a part of this mm -hmm. unbelievable story. It is an unbelievable story. And now it all opens here at the theatre, which used to be called the Fugard Theatre. Correct. And is now called? It's now called the Homecoming Centre, as it's part of District 6 and District 6 Museum. So it is the Star Theatre inside the Homecoming Centre. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, so it's an intimate setting as well. Yes. So you're not in a huge theatre. Well, we're in the Star, which is the downstairs theatre at the Fugard, mm-hmm. what they used to be called the Fugard, excuse yes. me, for, for people who know that space. Um, so it's the bigger of the two theatres okay. available, okay. Um, but it is very intimate, yes. Okay. Um, it's going to be quite an experience to <laughs> relive the book as a play, and I'm sure many people who have read the book must, like me, be wondering how on earth do you transfer that to the stage? But it sounds as though it's in good hands. Sylvain, well, come and see how and we've done it. it. Okay. <laughs> and tickets are at web tickets. Oh, yes, of course. So let me just get the dates right. Well, for the public, it's from the 14th of September Correct. to the 6th of October at the Star Theatre here in the Homecoming Centre. The Promise on Stage. Are you calling it that, The Promise on Stage? Uh, I think for social media purposes, for publicity purposes, it'll just it'll be called The Promise the on promise. Stage. Okay. And then as, as a play, it's called The Promise. I'm trying to work out whether I should read it again before I come and see the play. Or it let can't the play. harm. But also, you won't be lost in the play, I can assure you. And for those who haven't read it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was another You know, question. this is a very important thing, is yeah. for those who haven't read it. And Damon was insistent on this. We need to know exactly what's going on. We can't assume people have read it. So Damon's been very hands-on in crafting a story, if you will, as a live encounter. My goodness. Well, congratulations, even though I haven't seen it yet, but it sounds as though it's going to be quite something. Now, what's your final piece of music, Sylvain, to Uh, see you safely out of the studio? Yeah, I've I've chosen Sinead O'Connor's Sacrifice, Uh which is an interpretation, her interpretation of a uh, Elton John song. And I've chosen it because of adaptation and how it can morph into something else. So we know Damon's book as The Promise, and this is going to be The Promise on stage, um, but mostly because I loved Sinead so very much, and we lost her last month, as we know, and she had a massive impact on my life. Sylvain, has been fascinating talking to you. Thank you, and um, I'm looking forward to The Promise on stage. Thank you so much, Rodney.